from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs, but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today we're going to do a deep dive into the issues of legally regulating marijuana in California and specifically in Los Angeles, and all of the challenges that are involved in that. I mean, from dealing with state laws and regulators to federal stuff, to coalitions, to all the really challenging issues around equity and trying to diversify participation in the industry. My guest today is Kat Packer. And I just get a kick out of this because I first met Kat back in 2016 when she came to work for me in Drug Policy Alliance, working on the campaign, Measure 64 in California to legalize marijuana, which we ultimately won. And then lo and behold, a few months later, she gets appointed by, I think, the mayor and city council of Los Angeles to become the first head of Los Angeles's Department of Marijuana Regulation. So Kat, I love it that you're in this position and you've now been in for many years, but thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Ethan. Glad to be here with you today. Yeah. So listen, I know it's been a hell of a ride running this office here, but why don't we first get into how you got into this marijuana issue, how you landed up in this position, your journey. And so my understanding is it goes back to living in Ohio, going to get a law degree and a master's degree in public policy at Ohio State University. But just tell us that journey of yours. In 2015, I was in my last year of law school at Ohio State, and I was taking a marijuana law and policy course uh, that's taught by uh, Doug Berman. And it was really through this marijuana law and policy course that I took and some other classes that I was taking, I was taking advanced social justice, I was taking the race and, and policy courses, and all at the same time where I'm learning about the history uh, of cannabis policy reform in the U.S. and some of the cannabis reforms that had started to take place around the country. After I graduated from Ohio State in 2015, I went to try and explore how I could get involved in cannabis policy reform. And my first entry into this space was working for uh, the Responsible Ohio campaign right out of uh, law school in Ohio. And for that campaign, I served as their assistant uh, director of internal communications. But I, I did a little bit of everything for the campaign. But uh, what that experience taught me was, one, how quickly these conversations were going to be happening without all of the appropriate stakeholders at the table and really how money was going to move this conversation. That's what I saw uh, in my experience with that campaign. But my passion for cannabis policy reform was really ignited by Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, uh, which I had an opportunity to read while I was in law school and taking the marijuana law and policy course. And in The New Jim Crow, there was a quote that really struck me and stuck with me as I pursued my interest in cannabis policy reform. Uh, the quote is, nothing has contributed more to the systematic mass incarceration of people of color in the United States than the war on drugs. And that was such a profound uh, statement uh, to me at the time. And while I was uh, taking this marijuana law and policy course, I had an opportunity to explore some of ACLU's work as well and eventually learned that Marijuana arrests accounted for half of all drug arrests in the United States and that most marijuana arrests were for possession and black and brown folks were disproportionately likely to be arrested for marijuana. And uh, the culmination uh, of you know, learning all of this uh, information, uh, <laughs> particularly while taking this marijuana law and policy course, led me to uh, write a capstone paper uh, for the marijuana law and policy course uh, titled Marijuana Policy uh, is Race Policy. Uh, after law school, after working uh, on the Responsible Ohio campaign, as I began to look uh, around the country for opportunities to continue to participate uh, in cannabis policy reform, uh, I uh, learned of a one-day strategy session that the Drug Policy Alliance uh, was hosting in New York ahead of 
the United Nations gathering uh, to talk about drug policy. And the title of this one-day strategy session uh, was very similar to the uh, title of the capstone paper that I wrote for this marijuana law and policy course, which was something like uh, marijuana uh, policy or drug policy is race policy. And that's essentially uh, what led my uh, interest in this work and, and then eventually working uh, with and for the Drug Policy Alliance. So before we move into your coming to DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, you know, I remember when that Ohio initiative came up in 2015, and it was a real challenge for me. I mean, the first thing was I see this initiative emerging in 2015 in Ohio, and it seems to be backed by 10 rich guys. And I'm trying to look around, who do I need to talk to? And there's this guy, Doug Berman, I guess you're, who happened to be your law professor there. And I called Doug, and the first thing he tells me, which was kind of neat, was that he had actually been a student of mine at Princeton back in the late 80s and early 90s. So we had this funny little connection there. And he begins to explain to me what's going on. And then I get a call from the guy running the campaign. And what's clear is that he's already raised the money from, I think, 10 major investors, each committing to put in $2 million a piece into this initiative. And they have a lot of good stuff in mind about democratizing lots of licenses and putting in equity things and all this. But the major flaw in the initiative was that they had also written into it a provision that said that only the 10 investors, or technically speaking, the properties they owned, could engage in marijuana production in the state of Ohio in perpetuity. So basically a constitutionally mandated oligopoly, which was just kind of venal. And I said to the guy, the campaign manager, it's hard to see how we could ever get behind this. He goes, well, listen, I'm going forward no matter what. So we agreed, we Drug Policy Alliance, that we would help him draft the thing to make it as good as possible in all other areas, just in case it won, but that we could never endorse it because of that particular provision. Now, as we both know, and our listeners may not know, I mean, this was the first major ballot initiative that was basically funded entirely by people wanting to make money. I mean, until that time, and really even through 2016, virtually all my fundraising for ballot initiatives, both medical and otherwise, had come from philanthropists and very little from people who are hoping to make money in the industry. But here was an opposite example of jumping to the utter, the opposite extreme. And I remember, and this is going to sort of set up the question for you here, talking with the head of the Ohio State ACLU and us two commiserating, like, what are we going to do here? Our major objective is ending the harms of prohibition. If this initiative passes, it will cut by maybe 10,000 a year the number of people being arrested for low-level marijuana offenses who are disproportionately people of color. But the system they want to set up is fundamentally basically fucked up. And so in the end, we didn't take a position. We laid out the pros and cons. But for you, who was already interested in racial justice, it, it was obviously going to present some of these benefits. How did you come to grips with this initiative campaign that you were going to work with that had this highly offensive kind of greedy provision in it, even if it was doing a lot of good on the other side? Yeah, Ethan. And I just want to say that I, I think that there were, even outside of that provision, there were ma many flaws with with the campaign itself and with provisions that were included in the campaign. I think a lot of things that we've learned in hindsight now, being able to see the full extent of what some later reforms have looked like. But to be frank, when the organizers of that campaign first came and presented to Doug Berman's class, 
I took issue with their organizers and spent a lot of time pushing back on their framework. I remember leaving that class very agitated because it was very obvious to me that they weren't having conversations about the impacts that cannabis policy and enforcement prohibition had had on black and brown communities, or it seemed like there was only going to be an effort to talk about it and not actually do anything about it. And it was only after several conversations with Doug Berman and really just telling myself that this was an opportunity for me to learn as much as I could while I had an opportunity to participate on this campaign and then use all of the things that I learned in my next iteration uh, of the work. And so that's how I approached my participation in the campaign, Mm -hmm. that I was there for a learning experience, that I I knew that there were going to be positions and ideals and people (laughs) that I would have conflict with, but that I could still use that as an opportunity to learn uh, and then Mm -hmm. put those lessons to use in the next iteration uh, of whatever I was going to do in cannabis policy reform. So you didn't need to be in a position of publicly defending the initiative, really? No, all of my work was internal. And so not only did I I get an opportunity to see how the campaign operated, how it was organized, but really the value system uh, of that campaign and working uh, very closely with that campaign's leadership. And while I think they're all fine people, I I don't think that the initiative itself was prepared to, Mm -hmm. to accommodate all communities. So then you become aware of Drug Policy Alliance, and I guess you come to New York to one of our events and say more. I knew that I wanted to get deeply involved in cannabis policy reform. And I remember telling myself as a young person who had just graduated from law school, I need to get some more cannabis on my resume. And I, I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to do that as extensively as I wanted to in Ohio. And so I began to look kind of nationwide to see who was doing some of the work that I was most interested in. And as I was in pursuit of that interest, I uh, found online that the Drug Policy Alliance was having this one-day strategy session called uh, something like uh, Drug Policy is Race Policy. And what stood out to me so much about even just the title uh, of that program was that it mirrored the title of the kind of capstone project that I had did for my marijuana law and policy course where I was looking intentionally at the impact that cannabis prohibition and its enforcement had on the Black community and and Black families. And so I said, this is where I want to be. And I caught a mega bus from Ohio to New York. When it opened, I had an opportunity to meet Asha. Uh, I was with the Drug Policy Alliance. I actually got a chance to listen to you speak there. But I also had an opportunity to meet Lynn Lyman, who at the time was the state director for the California Office for the Drug Policy Alliance. And she and I hit it off pretty quickly. And she was informing me that she was in the process of managing a campaign in California in support of California's Proposition 64 Adult Use of Marijuana Act. And it couldn't have been two and a half months later after going to New York at the attending the Drug Policy Alliance conference that I had interviewed to serve as the campaign coordinator for Californians for Responsible Marijuana Reform. Within weeks uh, of that interview, I was in Los Angeles. So when you were working on the campaign in that, I guess, late summer and fall, I guess that's when you and I first met, 
What was it like for you jumping into this California world? And here was an initiative which was not being driven by the money. We were still relying overwhelmingly on philanthropists. And our model was we would not raise money from people in the industry until after we had finished drafting the initiative. We didn't want to be tainted in that way. We would talk with all stakeholders, but we wanted this to be as good public policy as possible. But what was your role in the campaign at that point? And, and what was it like for you? So I served as the campaign coordinator, and my primary responsibility was to coordinate different elements of the campaign, whether that be messaging to different allies and campaign partners to on-the-ground work around California, but primarily in Los Angeles organizing. And I have to tell you that I was proud of that work. I'm, I'm still proud of that work. And the reform uh, that was packaged in the form of Proposition 64, because at the time, it was the most progressive, most criminal justice-centered cannabis legalization effort in the country. My primary responsibility was to organize with different stakeholders and allies of the campaign to get across messaging, to do different fundraising, but also spend a lot of time on the ground uh, organizing in and around the city of Los Angeles and did a lot of engagement primarily with underserved communities and black and brown uh, communities to try and strategize not only around how we could pass this initiative, but how we could get this initiative to work in our community's favor as it went through uh, the implementation stage. And so after the initiative passed in 2016, I stayed on with the Drug Policy Alliance as their policy coordinator in the California office. And at, at the time, my efforts really centered around strategizing and organizing the implementation of the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Mm -hmm. So let me just interject here for our listeners. So just so you're aware, the California Marijuana Legalization Initiative in 2016 was really a monumental undertaking, and Drug Policy Alliance essentially took the lead on that. Now, for me, it was kind of a kind of coming full circle or coming to a culmination in sort of my career of organizing advocacy from the medical marijuana issue. California done the first medical marijuana initiative back in 96. We were able to turn a kind of uh, ambitious local activist effort in the Bay Area into a really successful statewide victory back in 1996, really the first time that the nascent drug policy reform movement showed that we could play ball in the major leagues of American politics. And it was a wild ride thereafter. And there were all sorts of things involving legislation to try to implement the medical marijuana initiative and aborted efforts in that regard. One of our first challenges was making sure that only one of those succeeded and that that one that succeeded was the one that we thought best reflected public policy and that presumably DPA was taking a lead on. And we were ultimately successful at making sure that our initiative was the only one on the ballot. But we were also not unitary actors when it came to drafting that initiative. We had partners involved in this. Sean Parker, the fellow who had made a lot of money in Facebook and elsewhere, was a major financial supporter, not for for-profit reasons, for really good policy reasons. And there were other key players and there were unions and environmental groups and county law enforcement execs and all sorts of interests that had to be taken into account. So there was a lot of internecine conflict leading up to the finalization of our initiative and making sure it was the only one on the ballot. There were a lot of allies who were put out at feeling a little sidelined or not getting their uh, preferred provisions into the initiative. So the job that CAT took on was really a crucially important one. 
when I when I served as campaign coordinator and then policy coordinator thereafter, I uh, was boots on the ground for the campaign and had an opportunity to meet many different community-based organizations and just had an opportunity to engage with so many different stakeholders, which you mentioned before. A lot of my day-to-day organizing, particularly as we focused around implementation, was focused on local control. So many different statewide legalization efforts, and most, have some level of local control where they're allocating authority to local jurisdictions, cities, and counties to decide often whether or not to even allow for commercial cannabis activity. And then beyond that, when jurisdictions do decide to allow for commercial cannabis activity, the type of regulatory program or controls around time, place, and manner uh, where these businesses and how these businesses can conduct themselves. Mm -hmm. And so after the initiative passed in, in California, many local jurisdictions were put in a position where, because adult use sales were to begin on January 1st of 2018, as soon as the initiative passed, there was so much work to be done at both the state and local level to make decisions whether or not folks were going to participate in this licensing and regulatory effort. And more importantly, as I was doing advocacy in the city of Los Angeles and and really uh, trying to hold the city accountable to what I felt were principles and, and values that we have to lead with when we're talking about cannabis policy reform, I was tapped by the, the mayor to take on the challenge uh, of advising the city and administering its commercial cannabis program in August of 2017. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you now, Ethan, that I said yes, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Oh, I can imagine, Kat. The challenges you're describing, it's not just California, but basically every state where municipalities or counties have a large role to play, right? Both in determining whether or not there will be outlets, dispensaries, and in how they'll be regulated and all of that. So that's a a generic challenge around the country. Yes, it's a challenge that every single state goes through as they uh, go along their process. I think there are lots of different circumstances and factors that made the challenge that is the city of Los Angeles particularly unique. One, the city of Los Angeles and California in general had this long history of aborted efforts to really address this systematically. And what that meant was that there was a proliferation of cannabis operations in the city of Los Angeles prior uh, to legalization and a very gray framework, we'll say, in terms of what was considered legal and what was considered illegal. There's also super high demand to participate in the cannabis industry. And the city of Los Angeles has a population of 4 million, which is just as large as half of the the states in our country. Mm -hmm. So we are dealing with a massive effort. And the city of Los Angeles is, is often regarded as the world's largest uh, cannabis market. Mm-hmm. We can also provide some context here. If you think about it, California was the first state to legalize medical marijuana back in 96. 
Its initiative was far more open-ended and far few regulatory provisions than any of the other medical marijuana initiatives that succeeded it, both the ones that we at Drug Policy Alliance drafted with local allies of various states, as well as that other organizations did. And then that essentially did no statewide regulation of medical marijuana until 2015, until basically the year before we did the California Broader Adult Use Legalization Initiative. So it essentially had an, a semi, almost statewide unregulated market for 20 years. It had a booming black market, a booming gray market. And only in 2015 does Governor Jerry Brown, who had always been sort of hostile to marijuana reform, does he push forward a final statewide medical marijuana regulatory system a year before initiative? And he does it in a way that creates all of these sort of burdens on us when we're drafting the full legalization initiative to incorporate some of the bullshit that he had insisted be in the medical marijuana regulation one, when you're having all sorts of statewide agencies have a hand on this, really creating a really messy, difficult system. So when 2016 comes along and initiative gets won, you're dealing not just with this new medical marijuana system that kind of had some carryovers into the legalization initiative and that tied our hands. But meanwhile, California was far and away the biggest producer, not just market because it's the biggest state, but producing for basically a huge part of the rest of the country illegally as well. Right. And so you have a huge black market, a huge gray market. Some cities are regulating their medical marijuana fairly responsibly, like maybe San Francisco or Oakland or West Hollywood in Southern California. But a huge amount of unregulated stuff, incredibly dynamic, booming, illicit market industry, which is unlike the situation in most of the rest of the United States. Certainly New York doesn't have that. New Jersey doesn't have anything resembling the magnitude. And within all of that, Los Angeles was required as sort of the Wild West of the Wild West, the place where hundreds of unregulated, barely regulated medical marijuana dispensaries had popped up and where the city couldn't seem to get it together and where there were competing local ballot initiatives to figure out how to do this thing right. And into this steps you, Cat Packer, in the summer of 2017, trying to get a handle on all of this. I just can't imagine what it must have been like to step into that. I mean, you're still in your mid-20s. You're coming out of being an organizer and an advocate at Drug Policy Alliance. And all of a sudden, you're tasked with a job of setting up a brand new office and regulating an industry that was barely regulated. Tell me about some of the shocks or the realizations that hit you in late 2017 and 2018 as you tried to get a handle on what what it was you needed to do. So, Ethan, first, what I want to do is use this as an opportunity to point in some language. I've been making an intentional effort since I've started in this role and since I kind of learned about this problematic language to not use the term black market. Mm -hmm. I think moving forward, folks are using terms like unregulated market or unlicensed market, but myself and other folks have made an intentional effort not to use this term black market because there are lots of words in our vocabulary where we're talking about something that's black or brown and there's a negative connotation like black market, blackmail, uh, all of these negative connotations that I think we internalize and normalize over time. And so I've been asking folks not to use the term black market, but if they mean unlicensed, then we can say unlicensed. If we mean unregulated, we can say unregulated. What people in California like to call it is the legacy market. 
Well, I noticed, Kat, I remember at, at DPA, we made that part of our communications policy to avoid the use of the phrase black market as much as possible. I was using the phrase illicit market. Is that also one that's regarded as sort of not so good? I think that there's a spectrum. I don't necessarily have an issue with that language, but anytime I hear the word black market and I have an opportunity to provide an alternative mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't have uh, a negative a con- a negative racial uh, mm-hmm. connotation, particularly in this drug policy reform space, I think we, we just have to be open to uh, considering changing our vocabulary. So, but meanwhile, here you are having to deal with this, let's, shall we say, legacy markets, what yes. does it look like when you begin to get a lay of the land sitting there, not as an advocate for DPA, but now charged by the city of Los Angeles with getting a handle on all of this and trying to set up a legal regulatory system? When I was appointed by the by Mayor Eric Garcetti in, in August of 2017, we were less than five months away from when adult use sales were going to begin in the state of California and in the city of Los Angeles. And because of the framework that the state of California created, In order to operate on January 1st, on the first day that those sales were going to begin, businesses need to have both a state license and a local license. It was my department, my agency, that was supposed to be responsible for issuing these licenses. At the time, I was the only staffer. We did not even have a licensing or regulatory framework. As you had mentioned, there was still a lot of reconciliation that was happening between the medical provisions and the adult use provisions. And the state of California really spent the summer and fall, winter of 2017, working through these emergency regulations and local jurisdictions, laws have to, of course, be consistent with the state laws and the state regulations. And so I remember at the time only having two other staff members when we got the last iteration of the California emergency regulations. And then we essentially had to wait for that to happen in December uh, of, of 2017 for us to finalize our licensing and regulatory framework. So it wasn't until, and and I still now only have about three staff at the time. So it wasn't until December of 2017 that we had the actual laws and policies regulations that my department was going to be responsible for. There were dozens of pages that were passed overnight that had requirements and restrictions that we were to administer related to where these businesses could locate, who could own businesses, the types of operations that we're going to be allowed. And we're almost given this impossible task of trying to implement this program overnight with little to no resources. And that led for a kind of a chaotic and tumultuous start to our program. And what I'd learned over time is that every several months, there would be comprehensive changes uh, to those particular laws and, and regulations. And so the challenge as a local regulator has been trying to continue to administer our municipal code, which of course involves many different agencies, fire department, uh, departments of building and safety who issue uh, building permits, et cetera, coordinating with all of these local agencies, state agencies that are participating in this permitting process, all the while trying to advise our 15 council members who are elected and the mayor secure budget uh, and program resources to expand. And that was just the beginning. And meanwhile, you're dealing with the city council members, the mayor's office, all these other varied regulatory agencies in LA that have some role. And at the same time, you're dealing with the folks in the statewide regulatory shop where regulations keep changing. So it's a kind of multidimensional 
challenge in an ever-evolving universe that you have to keep bouncing around and leaping forward to try to set stuff up. Well, if we, if we fast forward now, it's been over four years that you've been in the mm-hmm. office and it's you know really a testament to you to stay in a position as demanding as that for so long. But how have things evolved in terms of what's going on on the ground, in terms of the respective roles of the state regulatory agency and the city council, in terms of the political support you get within the city of Los Angeles? How would you describe that evolution over these last four years? At times, it feels like there are a thousand things happening at once. As an organizer who stepped into this regulatory role, I kind of live my life on the legislative uh, cycle in different reforms that we try to pass uh, year to year. But we've made a lot of progress over the course of the last four and a half years. But that progress has still been challenged by what I'd say is a a lack of adequate uh, resources. We're all similarly struggling. People who are actively in these government positions, regulators, local state regulators, trying to manage these programs, many of us well-intended are are trying our best to manage these efforts with very few resources and also not necessarily having the benefit of all of the information uh, that is being gathered within each of our programs. I think that there's a real need for strategic coordination amongst all of the different diverse stakeholders that are uh, involved uh, in this process. But I think that's what's needed moving forward. Right now, I have a team of 30 staff hoping to be able to bring on 21 additional positions in the next fiscal year. We've been making a, a real intentional effort to expand business development programming aimed at communities that have been most impacted by the war on drugs and, and cannabis prohibition. And while there have been, again, successes in those efforts, I, I think that those, even those successes have come s- slowly and the pace, I think, has come at uh, a real cost to, to our, our efforts overall. Yeah, so let's get into that a bit, because I remember when we drafted Prop 64, we were very proud of some of the racial and social equity provisions we got in there. It made sense that those communities and individuals that have been most harmed by the war on marijuana and the war on drugs should get a sort of special dispensation or special effort to allow them possibilities. Now, when you look back over the laws that have passed since that time in New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, New Jersey, I think what we did in California seems less impressive in retrospect. It's also true that what one could do in terms of equity issues was probably much more substantial when a legalization law passes through a state legislature where you have mm-hmm. my powerful minority legislative coalitions pushing this than one can do in a ballot initiative where you have a broader population, generally mostly white, who's at best mildly sympathetic and oftentimes indifferent to or hostile to this. But a lot of what I've seen is this continuing challenges over, as I think you just said it, on the one hand, trying to get the best possible system set up so that you can get the licenses out, effectively regulate it, get out as many as possible, start do a good job, promote public safety and public health, maximize tax revenue. But on the other hand, a very conscientious effort to try to build in these equity provisions and to give a foot up to people who lack the capital or the training or or have other handicaps in terms of get, getting into this industry. And so what I wonder, Kat, is as you look at it now, do you see 
models? I mean, are, when you look around, and obviously you network with other municipal marijuana directors, you're running the biggest city, second biggest city in America, first biggest in California. Do you see places that offer some models about how to do this better? Do you look at the New York law and say, wow, I wish we had some of that stuff here? Yeah, I think there's a lot of me looking around and wishing that we had stuff here. But I also recognize that I I like to say that California set the floor Mm -hmm. and other jurisdictions that have come after us have had the benefit of being able to learn from uh, our mistakes, but also learn from some of our uh, successes. Uh, As as I talk to other regulators, I think that there there are obviously models that exist, but whether or not they're models that should be replicated, uh, I think remains to be seen. And I think part of the challenge is that we're not having the benefit, Ethan, of being able to learn from all of the models because things are moving so quickly. Mm-hmm. I am regularly in communication with jurisdictions that are getting ready to or thinking about launching their programs. And we have hour-long conversations, but there's only so much that can be gathered and shared in this piecemeal way, and it kind of gets replicated over and over again. But we really need efforts dedicated at think tanking all of these different pieces and gathering information from all regulators to figure out what specific strategies and inputs are going to produce different outcomes. Because within each of our jurisdictions, there are you know factors and circumstances that make our case study unique. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that we're going to be able to establish something that, that people can copy and paste. But my frustration thus far is that I think that there's in, in an effort to respond to criticisms of doing nothing in terms of equity, many jurisdictions can just take a, a copy and paste model without really thinking through Uh, How do we establish strategies that reduce barriers to entry? How do we systematically identify and address disparities uh, that exist across the board? And and that's the work that needs to be done Mm -hmm. in order for the city of Los Angeles to have the type of outcomes that we want to have, the state of New York to have the outcomes that they want to have. I I think that in in many ways, we're, we're not working as hard as we need to. And in some areas, we're obviously working more harder than we need to because we're not collaborating and strategizing and trying to push for joint efforts at the federal level. Who's the we there when you say we're not collaborating? I want to say all of the different stakeholders that are involved in this process. It's it's regulators, law enforcement, it's industry, it's it's public health uh, officials. I mean, I think you and I have had the benefit of being able to be at the center of this network. That's part of why we call it a movement, is because we all collectively have to be trying to move in the same uh, direction. But it just seems like in the in the grand scheme of day-to-day uh, management of some of these different program elements, it's difficult to coordinate and collaborate in the ways that we need to, because yeah. we've got our hands full with the 1,000 policy decisions that need to be made at the state and local level. As I was prepping for my conversation with you, I was going through some of the media last few years, and I could see when you first get appointed, there's all this huge enthusiasm, is oftentimes the case, but especially you're being a young Black woman coming from an advocacy background, appointed to this position, having obviously equity concerns front and center. And then a few years later, I see people coming from the minority business community, others who want to go getting so angry at you. And it's 
attacking you and stuff like that. And I know how incredibly difficult it can be. People have unrealistic expectations. Not everybody's going to get a license. There's a whole complicated bureaucratic mess. But I mean, how was that for you? And how is that for you dealing with that sort of stuff? It's it's difficult. It's exhausting. But I think it's worthwhile. I think the reality is that you have to show up and do the work. Even when people are unhappy, you have to show up and, and do the work. I think that there is a, a lot of work that has to get done internally within organizations, within agency, within government institution before the the outcomes, before the consequences of that initial effort is recognized. And I'm comfortable doing the work even before those outcomes are available. And that's what I think a lot of us who step into these uh, roles for the first time, leading leading these agencies from the ground up, are, are dealing with. But I do think that it was particularly difficult as someone who organized alongside some of these individuals and organizations. I think it was difficult both for uh, them and for me for that relationship to change almost overnight. Mm-hmm. And I had to communicate to folks that because of this new role, my relationship is going to change with you. And I think that that was difficult, in particular for some of the uh, stakeholders that uh, I engage most regularly with. But I all think that it kind of ebbs and flows some of the same folks who have been uh, most critical of the department, of me personally, I work (laughs) with on a daily basis because at at the end of the day, there's work to be done. And so uh, I don't have to agree with folks on everything, but where there is agreement, let's do the work. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. 
Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Just at the end of 2021, there were a whole bunch of articles, a wave of articles, not just in the California media, but the national media, saying the California marijuana disaster. Nobody's making money in the industry. People are talking about going out of business, that basically the legacy markets, uh, the unregulated markets, untaxpaying markets are two to three times, people think, the size of the legal market. The taxation structure is onerous and punitive. It's a goddamn mess. And what are we going to do about it? You know, we're talking now in mid-January, and I just saw that Governor Newsom, who was one of our key allies on the marijuana legalization initiative, and in fact, I think the, one of the first statewide leaders in America to step out boldly in supporting marijuana legalization. But he's saying, I get it. I recognize we got to change the tax structure. We got to change the regulatory context. But there's certain things that we're counting on to come from the tax revenue, so we just can't eliminate the taxes. So what's your perspective when you look at all this hand-wringing? And I saw uh, somebody like Michael Steinmetz, one of the guys running Flocana, one of the marijuana industries up north in California, saying we're just going to refuse to pay our taxes. This is becoming so onerous now, you know, go on a tax strike. What's your sense about this statewide situation? And is California going to begin to get a handle on it this year? Is there going to be effective statewide regulation? Do you and other municipal directors have input into this process? What can you tell us? So what, what I can tell you is that I, I have a very close relationship with Cole, who leads the uh, efforts of the cannabis department at the, the state. And I have confidence uh, in her leadership and the team that she's uh, assembled uh, really over the course of the last year as the California cannabis licensing agencies have consolidated. That being said, there's still a lot of work to do in order to move this industry forward in a way that is more responsible. Uh, I think that for many folks, it is still messy. It is still chaotic. I think that for many entrepreneurs, uh, particularly folks who uh, have been in it, who started this uh, several years ago, this has been uh, a painful process. And I, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that because I think that we can find ways over time to provide relief. I have confidence that it's something that can be done. I think the, the challenge is going to be whether or not folks are willing to uh, compromise about what we're asking for and clear uh, and what our uh, objectives are. And it has to be a collective effort. 
I mean, for as much as can be said about what the California Cannabis Regulatory Program has gotten wrong, there are so many jurisdictions, local jurisdictions, other states that aren't participating at all. And so I think we have to be in a a position where we can constantly make improvements. But I think we're in a position both here in California uh, and in other jurisdictions where we we need a, we we can't do this in a piecemeal way. We have to be able to make bold and comprehensive reforms now because the slow pace comes at a cost across the board. Yeah, I mean, Cal, I'll tell you, I mean, when I step back big picture, people would always ask me what I envisioned about the consequences in legalization. And my answer would be essentially that, look, I'm not fighting for the Marlboroization or Budweiserization um, of marijuana markets. I much prefer to see a small is beautiful model. But I know that we live in the most dynamic capitalist society in the world, if not in history. And that if you look at other things, the transition from alcohol prohibition, I mean, after we got repealed in 1933, there was a huge black market for many years before things finally shook out and eventually the, the illicit market kind of really faded into really playing a minor role. Or I even think about the fact that I almost make the analogy, you look at something like what happened with coffee when Starbucks comes in and it sort of takes over the world. Living in New York City, I see all the small coffee shops shutting down. But now I look around and I see that there's more small coffee shops than ever before. And that Starbucks is still out there, but they no longer dominate the way they did. And so I sometimes wonder whether there's just this almost inevitability to the sort of capitalist forces at work. That's the nature of the world we live in. There's, in the end, no stopping it, that we have a moral obligation to try to do what we can do in terms of advance a small is beautiful or a racial equity model in all this. But over time, we'll be able to get this thing right. And I think in the California context, which is unique in terms of the magnitude and size of the illicit market here and the market, not just selling to Californians, but exporting to the rest of the country, Mm -hmm. that there has to be a priority on trying to reduce the the magnitude of of this illicit market and move as much as possible into a legally regulated market, which may mean things like reducing some of the regulatory barriers, reducing some of the taxation. Uh, What's your thoughts about that? I think that we have to make it way easier for folks to do what we're asking them to do. That's for businesses, for consumers. We've got to make it easier for folks to do what we say is a good public health Uh, public safety strategy. And so I I think lowering taxes, making regulations less complex, making licensing more accessible is absolutely things that should be on the top uh, of our to-do list. But I think that we we have to think about how we uh, balance that with with an enforcement strategy, because the reality is that we're not going to have a successful licensed and regulated market if there isn't an enforcement strategy. But I I think we have to be careful not to replicate the drug war by allowing criminal enforcement to to take the lead. And so I think that there are ways that we can combine providing access to licensure, access to resources to help folks get through the process, tax breaks, uh, lowering of of tax rate, all, all of those things combined, but also looking at how we can have an alternative to what our historic and existing enforcement strategy has been. One of the ways we've been trying to do that here in the the city of Los Angeles is by doing things like 
utilizing utility disconnection or padlocking buildings using our building and safety department or our Department of Water and Power, again, to disconnect utilities as agencies that can lead in these efforts that aren't police or criminal enforcement taking the lead. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I sometimes reflect back on the initiative of 2016 where DPA, where we played such a big role. We were talking to folks in the environmental activism area. We were talking to labor unions. We were talking to people, a whole host of areas. And so we put in stuff requiring environmental protection stuff and water quality protection stuff and, and some labor type stuff. And I sometimes wonder if we went too far in that regard, essentially holding the cannabis industry to a higher standard, not just on, on racial equity issues on issues that people have been subject to mm-hmm. uh, have been harmed by the war on drugs, but even more broadly. And I also sometimes wonder, were we too, because we went out of our way to minimize the severity of the penalties for people operating outside the legal market. But if you look back about what we might have done differently with this initiative, are there things that really stand out to you that could have made it work a lot better? Yeah, I, I definitely think that the environmental uh, requirements, as I engage with stakeholders across the state, them being held to a higher standard is coming as a real cost. So I think that that's one of the areas that probably went too far. I think that there's a delicate balance between the the pros and cons of local control. And I say that as a a local regulator, but part of the challenge is, is that there are so many jurisdictions in the state of California that aren't participating. I think that part of that is because there hasn't been the infrastructure to, to help them figure out what it is that they need to do. I think that it's going to take a while for folks to be able to revisit that and the kind of allocation of the, the tax structure. I know that Proposition 64 was one of the first efforts that allowed for expungement of cannabis records. But I think part of what we've learned in, in hindsight is that in order for those types of reforms to be as effective and, and impactful, they need to be free and automatic to folks. So I think that there are lots of lessons that we can learn in in hindsight, but I I also think that there are several actions that can be taken today, both at the state level and at the local level, to to try uh, and address this. And again, you may not see the results uh, of decisions that are made today until two, three, five years from now, but if that's the work that needs to, to be done, at least needs to be started. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to, to these issues around equity again. There was just recently a big rally in the state capitol, Sacramento, around the equity issues. And I think there's a plans to have a local initiative on the ballot in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Equity Fund Initiative, in which our former colleague Lynn Lyman is playing a role. What do you think about these efforts, this local initiative effort and some of these other ones? Well, I'm, I'm glad to see communities organizing in support of themselves, because I think that What happens a lot of times is that there is a lot of deference that is given to some elected officials, even regulators, and and folks think that uh, they don't need to participate. The reality is that in order to see the types of reforms that are going to allow us to do this more responsibly and more equitably, we have to have collective participation across the board. And so I'm happy to see communities organizing across the state in support Uh, of making sure that folks have access to participate in the industry and have resources they need to be sustainable in the industry. I think part of what you're referencing, Ethan, in terms of some initiatives that may be happening in in Los Angeles is really centered around transparency of where cannabis tax revenue is going. 
And I think that this is one of the biggest pieces that often gets missed in some of these conversations around equity and reform generally. We always got to follow the money. In terms of the cannabis tax revenue, I think there's, of course, resources that go into and are necessary to administer these programs, but where's the rest of the money going? And communities here in the city of Los Angeles, in California, and in uh, across the United States that want to see that commu- that uh, revenue go back to communities that have been impacted by cannabis prohibition because cannabis prohibition and its enforcement led to the divestment of communities. And there are opportunities for us to use those resources to, to build back <laughs> these communities stronger. And so I think that's part of what's happening in the city of Los Angeles and, and what we've seen in, in I think folks in Los Angeles are are leading that effort because elected officials haven't. But in other jurisdictions, we've seen, particularly uh, when legislators are are leading these efforts, we've seen jurisdictions like Illinois, New York, Virginia, New Jersey, dedicating significant percentages of their tax revenue to communities who have been most uh, impacted. Uh, And in the grand scheme of things, uh, that may have a greater impact Uh, on equity reform efforts overall. They can then fund different elements of equity efforts than some of the work that's being done to allocate uh, a few licenses Mm -hmm. here and there. Uh, The reality is that everybody who wants a license isn't going to get one. People who, everybody who gets a a license isn't going to keep their, their license. And so as we think about disparities that exist and how we can strategize to address those disparities. We have to think about uh, what the impact of some of these programs are going to have. And uh, I've been happy to see over time that this concept of equity has rightfully expanded beyond equity and licensing to include assessments of things like equity and health and the distribution of cannabis tax revenue and enforcement moving forward. All of these different data points need to to be tracked. I think in order for us to sit here and assess whether any individual program or strategy uh, is working without that information uh, is Mm ill-informed. Well, let me ask you this. One of the issues that comes up in the equity thing is about access to capital and that by and large, that folks who have the the money, typically white people, have better access, better experience in getting it, all this sort of stuff. And now in terms of federal legislation, there's this debate whether or not to pass the Safe Banking Act, which would presumably ease access to capital for, you know, poor people, including people of color, or basically to say, we're not going to allow that to pass until we've addressed broader issues around equity. And this has played out where the the House of Representatives has passed both the Moore Act, which integrates the whole thing. It's kind of a comprehensive good bill that includes all the equity issues as well as Safe Banking Act and a whole range of other things. But in the Senate, there doesn't look to be any real support to go for a broader thing anytime soon. And the Democrats have a very good chance of losing control of the Senate at the end of this year. So from where you sit, What's your feeling about this issue? Would you like to see the Safe Banking Act at the federal level just go through because it actually would help your efforts around equity locally? Or do you think it's better to say, hold off, hold off, even if it takes years until we get a more comprehensive package through? So I have to tell you, first, access to capital is a real barrier, uh, a marked barrier to industry, to, to participation in the cannabis industry here in the city of Los Angeles and California across the nation. It's difficult for us to administer our equity program and to see the 
benefits associated with our equity program, our, our efforts are thwarted uh, because our applicants, because this industry has historically and continues to lack access to capital and banking services. However, you're asking me what, what my opinion is today. Yeah. I don't want to see banking reform prioritized above the multitude uh, of other issues that need to be addressed uh, at the federal level. I think we're signaling our priorities always in our decision-making. And it's just kind of crazy to me that we are prioritizing businesses and their concerns, albeit you know, black and brown businesses have these concerns too, but above individuals and communities that have been impacted. So as much as I see day-to-day -day and, and deal with the challenges of an industry's lack of access to banking, I also see many other impacts that federal prohibition continues to have on our community and the industry uh, at large. Yeah, I have to say, I've really been torn about it because I, I keep very close to my successors at Drug Policy Alliance on these policy issues. And I really admire the way they put together the coalition in New York to pull together a comprehensive bill. And the moment was right with very strong Democratic majorities and, and Cuomo being not really all that keen on marijuana reform being hostile. And so I think they played it right on the federal thing where what I see is essentially you know, a lot of people saying, look, when it comes to access to capital, a lot of the biggest marijuana businesses, which are you know generally white owned, that they already have access to capital. They have other ways of getting it. This is an issue for them. It's a much bigger issue for the smaller guys. And meanwhile, when you look at the politics, there aren't even 50 Democrats to support a broader kind of more social justice oriented marijuana legalization model right now, never mind the fact that there are no Republicans to do it and a very good chance that the Democrats may lose their powers. And I worry, in fact, that either this thing is just going to not get taken care of for many years to come, thereby disadvantaging all the poor people, black, white, brown, you name it, who want to try to get going in this industry because they can't get the capital. Um, or alternatively, the Republicans take over and they either block it or maybe just allow a very narrow version of this thing to suit their own interests while getting the political credit. I don't know. I mean, I read the capital thing and I don't know if the states themselves, whether the state of California and others can help address this on their own. Maybe there's there's action you know, happening on that front. But what do you think? I, I think that the, the reality is that black businesses have always and today, even outside of a cannabis concept, have struggled getting access to financial services. And so I don't see, unless there are specific provisions on, on how and why access to banking is going to provide specific benefit to minorities, folks who participate in equity programs, et cetera, I don't have any expectation that allowing everyone to have access uh, to banking services is actually going to result in black and brown communities being lifted up in the ways that are being kind of campaigned on today. I recognize that many of these uh, entrepreneurs would like to have access to, to banking services, but I don't know that this legislation gets them what uh, they actually uh, should be entitled to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I saw the basketball player Al Harrington, 
who's very involved in the marijuana industry now, being interviewed on a podcast uh, hosted by another basketball player, Steve Jackson, who was actually a guest on Psychoactive. He raised this issue and he goes, I'm taking this into my own hands. I am basically now getting 10 licensees. I'm providing them the capital. I think he said they're all black. And this is my way of, of really moving this thing forward. And I wonder about, especially being in, in Los Angeles, where you know there's a lot of entertainment money, a lot of wealthy black entertainment money, many of them getting involved in the industry from sports or other types of entertainment. Are you seeing more of an effort coming out of that part of the wealthy black community in this area? Or are they just kind of doing their own thing, making their own investments and staying on the sidelines from these broader issues of equity when it comes to the industry? I am seeing over time, I have seen more black and brown folks get involved in direct investment in the cannabis industry and and folks trying to set up structures similar uh, to Al Harrington's and going after multiple licenses and trying to uh, fund them. I think that for some, those those models could work. For, For others, they may not work. What I can say as a point of caution is that for for businesses who are involved in investment, it's just critically important to make sure that you all have attorneys at the table because we want to make sure that even when black and brown folks are the ones who are investing into these businesses, that they're not doing so in a predatory way. So I remember some of the criticisms around minority set-asides and government contracts years back. And I never really studied this deeply, so I don't know how accurate this is. But there was oftentimes the perception that you'd have people with money, typically white people, white business, and they'd see the opportunity. And what they would do is they would get a person who was black and they say, okay, you get a 10% stake. You're the face. You get the title. But effectively, de facto, you'll work for us. And I wondered, is that happening again in this area? Are there safeguards against that sort of thing? And how would those safeguards work? So it's definitely happening in this area. There has to be an intentional effort to build safeguards to prevent against it and when it occurs to address it. That's just part of the reality. I can tell you that some programs put more infrastructure and in, in building those safeguards in place, and some programs don't have many safeguards in, in place at all. But what we've done here in the city of LA is that we require uh, lots of disclosure from our applicants and owners and investors and require, particularly when we're talking about folks who participate in our equity program, to demonstrate how the equity applicant owns uh, percentage of profits, voting control, et cetera. Part of what we've done over uh, the last uh, two years is to create pro bono legal assistance uh, program with the Los Angeles uh, County Bar Association to, to try and provide support to folks as they're going through their business formation process and as they're signing all of these contracts. But I can tell you that without safeguards, without resources to help folks prevent against predatory practices in the cannabis space, it is absolutely happening all over the place. And do the resources need to come from the city or the state or both? And is there more of an effort? I mean, I remember one of the things we were very proud of in Prop 64 was that we wrote in there a provision where a certain percentage of the tax revenue needed to go to support those communities that have been most victimized by the war on drugs. I can't remember what the percent was, but I think it's it's set up some sort of grants program. Has that played out fairly well? And is it continuing? And is any of that money going to help advance equity challenges in the marijuana industry? 
So the money that was set aside specifically in Prop 64, it hasn't primarily gone to equity applicants seeking to participate in the cannabis industry. It went to other elements uh, of community reinvestment, workforce development, but and it, it went to things like substance abuse treatment in those uh, communities, kind of uh, building up community organizations in those communities. But the money that's gone to these equity programs has come from one or two places, either local, and, and up until this point, local jurisdictions have led equity programs in the state of California. The state of California just recently, in their last year, created a position, deputy director of equity, which is led by Eugene Hillsman. And I know that he and his office and Nicole and her operations are leading uh, that work. But at the local level, where these programs are led, money is either coming from the uh, local jurisdiction's budget, their general fund, or local jurisdictions are getting this money competitively through grants that have been administered at the state. Now, these grants that have come from the state are not a result of Proposition 64, but are the result of the uh, California Cannabis Equity Act, which Senator Bradford, Stephen Bradford, led in, in support with our office and other regulators, equity applicants across the state, back in 2018. So since 2018, there has been a bucket of money that local jurisdictions could apply for, but th th those resources are, are simply not enough. We're talking about the entire state distributing $30 million, $40 million, a city of Los Angeles, the largest market, walking away with one year, $8 million, mm -hmm. the next year, $2 million. And so that's the challenge is that because there's not a dedicated source of funding, it's difficult to do this strategic planning and management of our programs because we're fighting for resources year to year as opposed to knowing what our economic outlook looks like at least two, three years from now. We've been successful thus far at securing resources and getting them out the door. My department has distributed $6 million to over 205 equity applicants just this past year, but all the money that we got is already distributed. And so in order for us to do more, we need more. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep. 
and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. There's obviously what, hundreds of people sitting in jobs like yours around the country now, essentially in charge of the city or county's regulation of marijuana around around in the 18 states that have legalized marijuana and more than double that number who have legalized it for medical purposes. I, I'm sure you're in touch with some of them. I saw that you're part of a group called Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, but obviously involved in the broader ones as well. And I'm thinking at this point, you've been in the position for coming on four and a half years you must be one of the senior members in the entire country now in terms of longevity in this position. And so I'm curious, what are those networks like? What are those relationships like? Who are you learning a lot from? How much are people looking up to you at this point that you've been in this position so long? What is that world like? I've grown to appreciate civil servants and, and public servants, uh, public administrators in this space because they're doing a lot and getting uh, hit with criticism from all sides. It's true, Ethan. Most of my colleagues have come and gone <laughs> at this point and, and transitioned uh, into other roles. And I'm very excited for uh, all of them and the work that they're doing next. But it has become a very kind of close-knit community of regulators just because we feel as though there are only so many people who know exactly all, all of the challenges and headaches, similar litigation, personnel issues, we're sharing org charts and budgets and how did you train your staff to do X, Y, and Z? And inevitably we're uh, interacting and engaging with each other at uh, industry conferences and, and regulator specific conferences. And so there is a network of folks who uh, are working collaboratively, trying to learn from one another, trying to improve our, our local programs. 
I'm curious because I was delighted when you got this position. And then more recently, one of our other colleagues at Drug Policy Alliance, Chris Alexander, a young black man working in our New York office, got appointed by the new governor to head up New York State's Office of Cannabis Regulation. Have you two been in touch? Yes, and he's got a task on his hand. Chris, I'm, I'm here to support you in any way uh, that I can. Obviously, this is about regulating locally and helping people get licenses and set up a system that meets the state guidelines and the city guidelines. But on other issues, like on clearing people's criminal convictions for marijuana. I talked uh, earlier today with Dale Geringer, who is a long time, has been, is still the longtime head of California Normal, the marijuana legalization group, and played a role mm -hmm. uh, in these initiatives. And I asked him, and he says he's focusing on now, is that you still have people all around California being drug tested for cannabis in order to get or keep their job, which even include nurses in the face of a yep. nursing shortage around COVID. Or you have pain patients, people getting legitimately prescribed opioids who will be forced to get off the opioids if they use marijuana, even though there's evidence that those two drugs actually have a positive interaction in terms of pain management. So how much are you getting involved in those other sorts of issues, which are not about the business and licensing, but more about broader marijuana? On a policy. So I, I am always available and ready to stand with communities when there are these types of issues that are occurring. And so, Dale, if you're listening, I'm down to connect and we can figure out how to organize together on this. The reality is that even though the code that I administer that I'm primarily responsible for does relate to the business and licensing of the, the cannabis industry, my role is, and I see my role and responsibility as much larger than that. My Part of my responsibility is to advise the city of Los Angeles on their cannabis laws and programs and the impacts that cannabis laws and programs have on our residents and visitors. And this is a reality that folks are continuing to be impacted by pre- and post-employment uh, drug testing. And it, it seems crazy that this is still the case here in California. I know uh, other jurisdictions still have these provisions as well, but I feel as though you had made a comment earlier, Ethan, about how the consequence of California being the first to have medical cannabis back in 96 and then taking 20 years to kind of catch up with its regulatory program. My concern, uh, and this is what we actively fight against, is that even with our legalization effort, we will be the first, but then slow to catch up after the fact. That's part of the reason why I think that there there has to be the work done now to map out all of these different lingering issues and effects of the war on drugs, of cannabis prohibition, and some of the negative consequences of our regulatory efforts to date. Because there are so many decisions, because there are so many pieces, I think it's difficult or it's easy sometimes to not be able to prioritize all of them, but the reality is that the consequence of these lingering consequences and provisions are, are ridiculous. Yeah. And listen, if the feds somehow land up legalizing cannabis at the federal level, does that fundamentally change the nature and challenges of your job or the changes bigger at the state level? I think that it will definitely change what things look like in the city of Los Angeles, just because we are such a, a large market. But our job is to help this industry navigate through the, the challenges uh, of the day. And the reality, and that's part of what our equity program seeks to do as well. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that when 
federal legalization happens, there will be a whole host of new challenges that states and local jurisdictions will need to figure out. How do we continue to protect our markets? Many businesses, and I think markets, are going to collapse after federal legalization if there isn't intentional provisions put in place to protect them. And so I think that it'll be a new iteration of of different uh, challenges that we hope navigate folks through. I'm hoping what this means is that our equity efforts uh, become uh, a little bit easier and that we can rely on existing federal, state, local infrastructure to provide business programming. That's the reality with our, our equity programs right now, Ethan, is that we're starting from scratch, reinventing the wheel with business programming for the cannabis industry because the cannabis industry, for legal reasons, can't have access to the already existing infrastructure that provides every other industry business support in this country. Mm-hmm. So once we're able to connect our industry to these uh, existing resources, uh, I think that'll uh, free up some of our capacity to work on more challenging issues. Okay, so the last set quick questions here. First, when you look back over these last four and a half years in a job, what would you rate as this, your biggest disappointment in these four and a half years? And what would you rate as your biggest success? So I, I think my biggest disappointment would be just the the disparities that uh, exist today. I think I, I, I assume that this would happen much sooner, that some of these reforms, some of these efforts would happen much, much sooner. I didn't, learning how long it, it took to go through a budget process to secure resources, to get council members lined up to take a vote to actually implement these pieces. It's taken so much longer. And again, that time has been money for applicants and that, that's, that's been a pain point uh, for many of our operators. I'd say another uh, disappointment, which is because I'm, I'm thinking about another one, is just the, the disappointed with some of our elected officials who have kept cannabis at an arm's length. And with the local has, city council or elsewhere? I'm, I'm specifically talking about the local city council, but elsewhere also. I'll use this as an opportunity to call out all of the other elected officials <laughs> everywhere else who keep cannabis at an arm's length because they don't see it as their issue or affecting their constituents or amongst a host of other priorities. It just doesn't rise to the level of prioritization. A cannabis policy is one of those public policy areas that has uh, long been in need uh, of reform and attention. And I feel as though, at least at the local level, it's often felt as though when, when folks first legalized and first passed their first ordinance, they wanted to pat themselves on the back and say, we did it. And in reality, there were, and there are so many uh, decisions that still need to be made and issues that need to be worked through. I think what I will count as the success is the movement that we've generated that I've been able to contribute to around the country that has led to an environment where it's difficult to try and move cannabis policy reform without the inclusion uh, of equity. It is the, I'll count as my success, the rally uh, that's happening at, at the state capitol or that just recently happened at the state capitol just because they're a lot of infrastructure and organizing that went into just making sure uh, that there was a platform and and something for folks to react to 
in this space, but we have so much more work to do. And we got to think more strategically about how we help each other in the work. Kat, it's kind of a semi-requisite question on psychoactive. And given that you're in a public position, you can only say so much. But on this one, so do you enjoy cannabis? Is it part of your life? Cannabis, it is a part of my life. It, it has been for several years. I'm a, a cannabis consumer. I've been open about that since I, I started this position. I've also told folks that it's uh, none of their business how much I consume or, or what I'm consuming. But I think it's important for folks to be comfortable talking about their cannabis use. And so I've made an intentional effort to, to be strategic about that communication, but also unashamed and unapologetic about it as well. So Kat, I'm so grateful you're taking the time to do this. I'm so incredibly proud of you for not just the job you did when you were working with me at DPA, but these four and a half years you've spent trying to make, you know, some real sense and order and responsibility in the way that Los Angeles deals with marijuana and marijuana regulation. So more power to you and I wish you all the best. Ethan, thank you. I look forward to continuing to coordinate and, and support your efforts as well. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivik Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Paul Stamets, one of the world's leading mycologists, who explains why mushrooms can be magical, whether they're psychedelic or not. When you look at the scalability of the fermentation in vitro technology, the ability of you being able to generate enough mycelium to replace leather, to replace meat, to be able to help ecosystems break down toxins, to be able to grow enough psilocybin mushrooms to expand consciousness. And I think psilocybin it will lead to humans becoming a new species. We are not the, the homo sapiens of the past several hundred thousand years. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.